Kajal Magazine's culture podcast, hosted by me, Nadia Agrawal, and made in partnership with Erios Network. Before the pandemic and before lockdown, I was thinking about futurism a lot as a genre of work or a medium, some kind of vessel to discuss the way things could go. Since its creation in the early 20th century in Italy, the concept of futurism, which began as an artistic and social movement, has taken on various aspects or subgenres. Afrofuturism being probably the most notable one. Afrofuturism was coined in the 1990s by American cultural critic Mark Derry and explored by writer and academic Alondra Nelson. Afrofuturism explores the intersection of African diaspora culture and technology. Afrofuturism was everywhere when I was growing up. It was in music videos and magazine ads and spreads. Y2K brought a lot of anxiety about the future tech age, but it also brought lots of modes of creation. I remember watching TLC in their metallic lame baggy pants, Missy Elliott with her avant-garde looks, Michael and Janet Jackson romping around an abandoned space station. And as I grew up and read more, I picked up Octavia Butler. I saw Basquiat's art and textbooks. Afrofuturism educated me deeply. Key to futurism is the idea of liberation through imagination. As Nadira Simmons writes in The Gumbos on Missy Elliott and the Future, Why Black Girls Need Afrofuturism, historically, when the future is imagined in TV, music, and film, it is seen through a white lens. She goes on to write about the dearth of Black characters in mainstream fantasy and science fiction, TV shows, and movies. A bad precedent is set, she writes, when marginalized groups are presented with depictions of the future that do not include people who look like them. And in the case of little Black girls who learn at a young age just how powerful racism and misogyny can be, visions of the future are essential. Genre can be an incredible tool for not only imagination in the short term, but vision in the long term. What I mean is, having science fiction, fantasy, horror, fairy tales, etc. as a jumping off point for imagining ourselves in more adventurous milieus is good for both the moment and building a foundation for future generations to create upon. If we can't imagine a world where people who look like us exist easily, have wonderful lives of opportunity and adventure, how can we work towards one in reality? Afrofuturism, of course, extends back further than the 90s and much deeper than my own consciousness. And it makes me consider what South Asian futurism could look like. Kajal's second print issue was themed around a concept our team created, Mythotechno the intersection of religion and technology. We posed a question to our contributors. How do faith and technology amplify and contradict each other? What we got were an incredible array of essays about prayer apps, articles about Skype shamans, short stories about Sufis in space. The prayer app piece is especially relevant now with the news that Muslim Pro, 
an app that alerted users for prayer time, has been selling its data to the U.S. military to potentially aid in the surveillance of the Muslim community, a sort of futurist dystopia. South Asian futurism, to me, can be seen in the works of Sam Madhu, who often depicts a sort of Hindu cyberpunk hyper-reality with neon colors and robotic asuras in the city center. It can also be seen in Pakistan Plus, a specifically Pakistani futurist series by Omar Jalani. Then there's the forays into fantasy and science fiction, like in Sayanthani Dasgupta's books or in Thanas Batenas, but it still feels largely untapped. My prediction, a very lukewarm take, is in the next decade or so, we're going to see a lot more distinctly South Asian futurist work. Movies, TV shows, plays, books, art, video games, stories of all kinds that braid together culture of the past, present, and future to imagine what the world could be with us as drivers within it. I love working with genre in my own writing. I think the collected tropes and patterns of horror or science fiction are fertile ground to invert expectations and challenge norms, both in genre and narratively. So I was really looking forward to talking to comic artist Bijak Som, whose graphic short stories play freely with genre. Having the tools to make explicit what you imagine a utopia or utopias can look like is one very important step towards realizing those utopias. And in the story, they're... They wheel between the fantastical and the mundane easily. And I wanted to talk to her about how she builds on the canon of South Asian futurism in her own work. I'll be speaking with Bishak after the break. Be right back. I don't want you anymore, but I'm blind. I wish that you were here. Welcome back. I'm here with Bishak Som, whose debut graphic story collection, Upsara Engine, came out earlier this year from Feminist Press. The stories traverse the realms of South Asian futurism, intimacy, queerness, horror, and more. Thank you for joining us. My God, thank you for having me. This is uh, a distinct honor. Thank you. Oh, man. That's, that's so <laughs> Um, I really have been looking forward to talking to you about Upsara Engine, which I devoured when I got it about a month awesome. ago. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. It's such a like breathtaking work because I feel like each story is connected and yet unrelated to the stories surrounding it. Like your comics, so I know your comics have appeared in places like The New Yorker, The Boston Review, and more than a few queer comic anthologies. What was it like creating a collection like this for yourself and your work? It was um, embarking on writing and drawing up Sara Engine was a big turning point in my life. And it was, it came hot on the heels of me deciding to quit my full-time job in architecture. And uh, the project that I had in mind uh, that compelled me to quit my job was the creation of a graphic novel, a short story collection, which eventually turned out to be Upsara Engine after quite a few iterations and sort of, you know, twists and turns in my life. But it's something, a, a focus in my life that I, you know, that I'd always like zeroed in on since I was a, a kid, really. This is, putting together Upsara Engine was a culmination of a lot of my childhood, you know, desires and longing. And, our, you know, it's the sort of end point of, one end point of a lot of artistic ambitions. Yeah, I, I totally get you about kind of childhood ambitions. There's something very 
wondrous about these stories. Like it does tap into something that's like seeing beyond seeing and like uh, engaging with a sort of imagination that maybe we don't allow ourselves in the everyday. So uh -huh. I definitely see that like operating within the stories. Yeah, um, it's strange. I think that part of that wasn't part of my initial impulse when I was writing these stories. You know, I think the sort of uncanny elements to the stories somehow seeped in later. I mean, actually, at first, I was just wanting to write stories about South Asian women, you know, and just to have sort of space and time within a book to spend some time with characters who are South Asian women. And that was sort of the only agenda that I had. And somehow later, as the story started progressing and accumulating, I think there was a sense of eeriness and uncanniness that came in afterwards, almost as like a sort of ghost, ghostly presence that sort of haunted the stories as they were being written, I think. So, I'm, yeah, I'm, it, like I say, it's, uh, I think they, the, the story started off with a more innocent impulse and then became more and more kind of, became weirder and a little more, maybe weirder and more wondrous at the same time. Yeah, well, okay, so on this, I'm really caught by your use of genre. Like, your stories can freely between fairy tale, sci-fi, horror, and I've always personally been very attracted to the moorings of genre um, yeah. and patterns that you can use and invert. Um, they feel to me, especially fairy tale, science fiction, and horror as specifically feminine genres. Um, yes. They're very occupied with things that should happen, anxiety around bodies, that kind of stuff. Can you tell me um, more about why your stories fall into these categories specifically? I'm not sure why they do, but I think, you know, and I've always been attracted to the genres you mentioned, especially science fiction. And part of me wanted to write um, for lack of a better way to put it, like straight up science fiction story, but I always seemed to fail at that. Maybe fail is the wrong word, but I was, I was always, I felt deflected into this other realm, which was more of a hybrid realm. Like, as you say, it's, some of the stories are, have elements of science fiction, but they also have magical elements or elements of fairy tales. And that was, that's where I, again, I found myself like drawn towards it without ever having intended in the first place to go there. So I think I was just, um, it, it wasn't something I had planned out really. You know, I never, I, I may have had some sort of images in my head of what I wanted to put down on the page, but as, this, as the stories were being written and outlined, I think they naturally fell into this sort of third or fourth genre or category of story that maybe is slightly unnameable, but it's something I always was that, you know, that sort of unknown territory is something I was always drawn to. Um, and yes, it's also a very uh, feminist or fem femini feminine kind of landscape within that territory, you know? And some of these stories were written before I came out as trans. And one story, Swan Dive in particular, was. Um, written after I came out as trans, but they all have the trap, all of the, the stories have the sort of germs of that, of my womanhood in them, you know? They all have the kernel of what, what I didn't know to be explicitly true about myself at one point, and then that kernel sort of like, you know, bloomed into something else when I came out and realized who I was. And I think this writing those kinds of stories also helped me 
realize who I am, whether or not, you know, I occupy that third territory or fourth territory as a person, I'm not sure, but I think the story is certainly I'm really caught by what you said earlier about how you sort of set out to write about South Asian women. And then a lot of this, a lot of these sort of fantastical elements, these genre elements crept in. And that happens to me all the time in my writing. I like go into it, I'm like, I'm gonna write a love story. I'm gonna write, you know, something sort of straightforward. And then it's almost like I can't help myself to add right. like a horror element or like to add something else that just like turns the, like the edge of it a little bit like so it's not yes. as straightforward or you can still read it that way I think if you wanted to and maybe that's less possible to do in a graphic format where you know you have to be a little bit like you put things out there visually and so it's maybe a little bit harder to argue whether or not like the twin is evil or whatever right like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah genre play is maybe a little bit more overt but I've, I'm definitely like I understand that I think on a an inherent level maybe this is just what this is a lot of like south asian writers is to always kind of be flirting with other genres because our stories don't fall into one bucket i don't know i think yeah the one story in particular which is um mina and aparna is very much the sort of epitome of that you know tracking that sort of trajectory because it starts off somewhat conventionally and you can sense, I mean, you can sense, I think that my impulse, was, which was to just spend to spend time almost as if you're sitting and having a conversation with these two characters. And I wanted to just keep that going for a while and not really have anything happen. But inevitably it, it took some turns that I didn't initially perceive as being uh, fraught with any kind of meaning, but as I kept drawing it, and especially after the book has come out of people have told me that that story has a, has a more like you don't foresee where it's going. Um, and there's a sort of like edge to it as it goes on that I certainly had not planned out when I was writing and drawing it initially. So yeah, I think it naturally fell into uh, this tendency that you, as you were saying that we might have as writers um, to to be drawn into this current of, of uh, wanting to write a sort of more straightforward story, but then being caught in, in this other sort of channel and being, turn, being deflected towards um, a, a more uh, alien landscape. This is truly like an example of the muse moving through you, like it has like sort of, yeah. sort of conduits for like, whatever the ley lines of the world are. <laughs> like we're not uh -huh. really going into necessarily 100% of our intentions, but like something Which is what I thought, that, that's how I thought writing, I mean, until very recently, I wouldn't have called myself a writer even. You know, I considered myself an artist, but yeah, I mean, I wrote this book. So hey, I, I think I get to finally, after so many years, call myself a writer, but I didn't know that that's how it worked. I thought you had to like plan things out and, have it like almost like a murder mystery, you know, you have to like draw a diagram of how the whole plot is going to work out before you do it. But I guess, yeah, it doesn't work that way a lot of the time. Yeah, well, I, I think that's definitely like, there are certain types of writers that are very much planners. And I think that the term that a lot of them use is like architects, like they do create all of the diagrams and the blueprints uh -huh. for what they do. And then 
a lot of other writers are something like gardeners and they just sort of oh. plant something and hope something pops up and oh I, I, I write I haven't by, heard that. yeah funny. I write by like the seat of my pants as well like I'll go into something not knowing where it's going to end up so okay. I very much relate to that I uh, want to talk a little bit about the South Asian futurism in uh -huh. stories, which I'm very caught by. A lot of your imagery marries religious iconography, like many armed women, with mechanics, uh, cyber yeah. deities, and it's even in the title of the book, Apsara Engine, um, which of course puts me fully in the mind of like imagining a South Asian future or some sort of like new plane of existence that's inhabited by South Asian people. And I'm really curious about what role imagining this kind of future can play in helping us understand how to create a more creative, advanced, inclusive, and better future. I think this really um, comes up in the story Swan Dive, which you mentioned yes. previously. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to talk about it. So, yeah, I think, I mean, Swan Dive is the most explicit example of that. Um, and I guess if there is a message in that story, it's that very important step towards realizing those utopias. And in the story, there's, you know, elements of um, sort of fantastical elements that, that make those utopias come alive on the page, but also ostensibly for the characters as well. And, and that, you know, there's a, there's a, insinuation that they've somehow willed themselves into the pages that, or into the map that they're creating, right? Um, but I also think, I mean, if, if you're going, if we're going to talk about like what that means for real world <laughs> politics or, um, you know, what that, what that means in, uh, in the year 2024, us as citizens of Earth, um, I think what it means is that there are there are ways to imagine communities, community and communities multiple that maybe artists and writers have might have a role in in imagining. And I think you know, you think about just science fiction as a genre and the way it's you know predicted or or foreshadowed a lot of things that have come to pass. I think. Um, you know, if you want to call this Apsara Engine a work of speculative fiction, I think that it can also serve as a, as a mod, not this book, but, you know, the genre or the works like this can serve as models for how communities can be built. Um, and a lot of the inspiration for Swan Dive, of, you know, of this idea of, of creating communities comes from the idea of like, you know, South Asian trans communities, how like uh, communities of trans women basically created themselves, you know, when such things didn't exist. And so they created like that second families or groups of, of like, you know, uh, ensembles of, of trans women who, forged their own path because not only because they had to, but because I think, you know, there, it was like an act of imagination. And they said, well, if this space doesn't exist in the real world, we're just going to create one. And I think that was a really beautiful idea. And I think that is also true of queer communities uh, in general, like, for example, you know, like the ball, ballroom scene in, in the 80s and, you know, the witches 
you can see it, you know, if, uh, on shows like Pose, you know, those are communities that that create their own spaces and and imagine their own circumstances as an act of forward thinking. And I, and I think that's just, um, I think that's really beautiful and that's like an artistic endeavor. And so that's what I was tapping into with, with Swan Dive. And I think it, I hope to do more work like that, that imagine that is, a, you know, uh, comics and, and short stories that are acts of imagination that can beckon or, or fashion a future that, that is outside the, the systems that are in place now that maybe aren't, are not working. And I think what I also really loved in that story specifically was the characters create this sort of sprawling world. There's like mm -hmm. rivers, there's high rise buildings, everything looks very futuristic and beautiful, this like perfect, perfect universe. And there's still such space being created for nostalgia, for like simple mm -hmm. inclusive family experiences, like gathering for um, meals and like playing music together and also yeah. room for tranquility. There was just a lot of this sort of sense that it ultimately comes back to the same pleasures and the same small things that I think we're still very actively pursuing now. So even with like these, you know, yeah. this gorgeous futuristic tech, we're still like trying to make room for uh, chai at our aunt's house and our schedule. Right, right. So that was the other um, tendency in that story, you know, alongside the uh, impulse to imagine a future. I think the characters in that story talk about this, about a sort of nostalgia for a history or a past that never existed. And I think that's a very, I'm um, drawing on my own experience as someone who grew up in the States um, with, you know, uh, tenuous ties back to India and the sense that I had lost out on, on, on a sense of family and culture and, and belonging by having grown up here. And so that the ties all the cultural ties that I have or had seem to be very kind of flimsy and like, and even, and now that, you know, I kind of, I don't have any family, uh, biological family left in the States and there are, you know, most of my extended families in India, those, those ties seem even more thin, you know? So making this work, um, not only Swan Dive, but the, maybe, a, you know, a lot of Apsara Engine was a way for me to recapture and reassert those, those, thing, those things that bind us back to, to a sense of home and the family. Um, whether or not that family is biological, I think, you know, is up for grabs. But like the Swan Dive is positing the idea that you can create your own family that has that, a str as strong a sense of belonging and of home as, as the biological family that maybe has been lost, you know? And yeah, just writing and having those images on the page was a way for me to, to put that back into my own life, even if it doesn't exist in three dimensions or in the real, in my room right now or whatever. It was the, the just being able to imagine those things was a way to, to reintroduce them into my life. And I, but I think, you know, as people of the diaspora, that's what we do. We like reimagine our, our 
our ties and the things that bind us together. And I think this, I think doing these comics and these stories was a way to make that explicit. I hear a lot, especially like you said in the diaspora about people sort of mourning a history that didn't happen or memories of something that used to exist but no longer do or don't exist in mm -hmm. the form and we're all kind of like trying to chase that. But mm -hmm. I've also seen that as such a great source for creation. Yes. Because we are in a position to actually refashion culture entirely. A exactly. lot of isn't in pursuit of what people do in the motherland or in South Asia or wherever we're once removed from, but rather mm -hmm. what we make here, possibly from scratch, possibly on the bones of those things, or even on the foundation of those things. It's kind of, a, it's just, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an exercise in imagination and in placing ourselves within our own desires. Yes. So it's, it is, it's a very poetic, concept and I appreciate it being committed to page like this because in a lot of ways I find this book anthropological as well it's kind of uh -huh. it's committing histories that exist and don't exist to page which makes them immortal um which is also a really fun thing to do because I don't think I'm thinking about South Asian storytelling in general and how it also operates in that kind of gray space of like real and not real yes so it's um it's very tradition. I think there's also um, one thing I, I remembered whenever I get too nostalgic <laughs> is that those things that I um, that I still now find to be um, these memories or nuggets of the past or imagined kind of uh, spaces in the past that I want to go back to actually going back to those places and those in contexts is you rediscover how problematic they are that, and you tend to forget about how problematic they are when you're not in that context immediately. I'm thinking of when I went back to India um, after 10 years, you know, I went with my wife in 2016. She'd never been there and for me it was a great trip but all those things that I thought that I was during that trip, trying to recapture, while I was there, I said, I, I would say, I was like, make a note to yourself that these things are not as idyllic as you think they were or are, you know? So I think doing the stories as a way of like correcting <laughs> or like, yeah, um, sort of saying, here are the things that, here are those contexts that I, want to go back to but refashioned and reimagined so that they're better than than the the, the sort of kind of prickly um, complicated and awkward kind of realities that that are actually behind that um, those ideas um i also wanted to say that my favorite story is actually one of the smaller ones in the collection uh -huh. The one with the pet sphinx, um, <laughs> the dog with the human face who seems to want to speak, but at the critical yes. moment can't, and she remains captive. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm sure there's like so many allegories, metaphors you can project onto the story, but it really caught me and it stayed with me for days because I think the, the stories are so good at depicting 
a specific kind of horrifying experience where your body lets you down or your body yeah. in some way entraps you. And mm -hmm. it really, it was very visceral in that story. And I also appreciated that the character kind of pops up again in some form later in the collection. Right. Which made the whole thing feel like a mixtape with like callbacks and characters that appear <laughs> and disappear. And I, I appreciated that the order of them felt kind of, it felt very intentional and it felt like it's kind of like you're getting messages sent to you from the future in some ways. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there, there is a lot of um, doubling and sort of mirrors of uh, mirrored characters in the book. And that's something that I, I really, uh, I, a lot of that came from um, my editor at Feminist Press, who saw in it, in the original material, the, the beginnings of that kind of double work, you know, and I think they just helped me to make that more explicit. And I think it really helps the book cohere and hold together as, as an entity rather than as eight different short stories. Um, but yeah, there's a, the, the, that character, um, Kiki, I think her name is, um, that hybrid character, I think, or yeah, I was, I, I think uh, at the time I was writing that, it was based on a dream I had and, and may, I don't know what it says to me, huh? That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> it, it, it was a nightmare and I was like, what is it about these hybrid bodies that I find so horrifying? And this is before I, came out as trans and I, you know, I'm not saying that's what my body is about. It's, I don't think, well, maybe it is, I'm not sure. Maybe my, I think of my psyche more as, as a hybrid rather than my body, but there was something that I wanted to explore in the idea of the hybrid body as, as lived in, but also a source of horror and what, what that means both to the person who's writing the character and to the person reading this work and find, finding it unsettling, you know? And uh, I don't know if I have the answer, but she does reappear, as you say, in another story. And I think she's a little more, she's liberated in that story, you know? And she's almost like a messenger or an angel or something in that second story. So um, I think there is a way that the character has evolved and matured or grown up or something. And I think that was a process within uh, the writing of the book that, that I was also going through. Okay, so not to bring it all back to my love of horror and the Gothic, but <laughs> um, I, I often, I'm thinking a lot about hybrid bodies and maybe chimeras in some sense because, yes. um, so the Gothic is obsessed with the body and like body anxiety, body horror, the exchange of bodily fluids. It's a genre that was made by women to talk about specifically female fears, and then it was co-opted by a lot of other writers afterwards to talk about a lot of other anxieties. Um, but pregnancy is a really big part of the genre, and I've always thought uh -huh. of pregnancy as a hybridization experience. Um, uh -huh. Though, of course, in some readings, it's more of a parasitical experience, but it sort of has a sense of like, when you're pregnant, that it imbues you with a certain power or a certain ability or a certain weakness that speaks, I think, to what you're talking about in terms of the hybridization and how it's kind of this like between space where a lot can happen. There's a lot mm -hmm. of potential in terms of creation, but also horror and also everything else is just such an expansive place. But this is a total aside and I'm just like nerding out, but I really appreciate what you said about hybrid characters and, and um, 
creatures because I think it's it's such a it's such a fertile ground for storytelling. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. And also I think, you know, going back to the idea of of my, of bodies um being hybrid or not, it's you know, uh I think trans bodies in particular, and this is something that is hinted at in Swan Dive. And I, you know, I was I was wary of of the, you know, the sort of trans girl as magical being trope, um, which is I think within trans fiction or trans representation overdone. Um, but it's also something I'm really interested in. And I think it goes back to um, ideas about South Asian transness, you know, and the way that um, inars or hijras are, um, are perceived, but also perceive themselves as having powers that, that extend beyond the everyday. And that gives them a certain authority while simultaneously, you know, there obviously there's lots of um, social and economic disadvantages that they have to suffer. That's a kind of hostility and ostracization that they have to deal with. But they also have an advantage in the sense that they are perceived to be these magical beings and that they are able to confer blessings. And, you know, this is specifically South Asian. Uh, I mean, it exists in a lot of um, trans cultures around the world, but let's just, if we just if we are just talking about South Asian trans culture, then this is something that I was drawing on. Um, and I think I was in, interested in exploring because I, like I say, even though the trans girl as, as magic girl trope is overdone, I think there's a theme within South Asian history and culture that, um, that I wanted to mine just to see where it could go how you could take that and, and turn it into a sort of trajectory into, into like, into future, uh, future thinking, you know, and I think that um, Swan Dive does that um, specifically, but I think there is that tendency in the other stories, even though I think that might be a little more sort of buried or um, implicit. Well, I, I think all of your stories at least have the sense of like honesty, like being honest about something, speaking honesty into something, or I, I mean, that's like a very large overgeneralization to make about like a through line between all your stories, because I think there's many through lines. But that's definitely something that I think came, that rose to the top for me was just like, every story is about reaching some kind of understanding about self, and about yes. your own needs. Um, and often if necessary at the expense of others, and it's kind of a very powerful set of like stories to read in that way, because I mean, I'm still getting used to saying no to people. So I like, <laughs> really enjoyed that aspect of it. It felt very, um, it felt very connected to some things I'm going through right now. So I really, as a final sort of comment on, on the book, I wanted to also thank you for making it such a thick and big book because it's <laughs> to be able to just sit down for a few hours and read a series of comics that are very deftly written. It's just like, I think it's, it's, such, a, it's such an incredible medium and like often 
I mean, maybe you know this, but often comic books are very expensive <laughs> to buy because they go so quickly, uh -huh. and you know they're they're valued at what they're worth, which is great. But it's like it's nice to be able to just sit down with like a meaty book and like feel completely captivated for hours. So thank, thank you. I, I am I'm really glad that it's it has a certain heft, um, and uh, it it does take some time to go through it. Even though, as you say, it's easy to devour in in a in a sitting but still it takes some time to get through you know and i think it, it is very um i think a lot of comics artists find it a little disappointing when they put so much work into the writing and drawing of comics and it's so easily and quickly digested and i think a lot of the things that i was trying to do in this book and in my work in general is to slow down the reading process so that you have to linger with it for a, a while in order to get it enough. And the stories themselves are not direct or explicit. So it takes some time, I think, to absorb the obliqueness of them. And yeah, I'm 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 happy that 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 you think it's it's a it's a chunky work. And <laughs> I, I yeah, it makes me happy that that it's out in the world, even though it's it's the wrong year for it to be out in it. But anyway, um it's it's a volume, you know, and uh, for that, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. Yeah, I hope it's the first volume in like oh. a series of, of volumes like it. A lot oh. of the stories also really ask you to read them again and again. So like there's such a sense of like being able to go back to it and like reindulge and like get something new out of it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Um, so I have one last question and then oh. I'll let you go. <laughs> um, do you have any other projects coming up? um that we can tell our listeners about i am uh currently working on a short story which is going to be published and i don't think this is a secret um in eflux journal and i think there's going to be a special trans femme issue edited by my friend and uh mackenzie wark so that's what i'm working on right now I have another graphic memoir that came out in September called Spellbound. That's not a future project that's done, but if anyone wants to read more of my work, that's something that's out now from Street Noise Books. A completely different creature. It's, uh, it's, al it's almost memoir. It's memoir, but like sort of with uh, twists and turns in, um, but, but it's also a little more straightforward in some ways than Upsara Engine is. Um, I do have ideas for and the next book, but I think this year has put um, a bit of a wrench in the works as far as that goes, because I don't feel like I'm in the right frame of mind to start work on it. Um, maybe if things get better, I'll have a little more motivation to start on that. But I think that will be a more sustained, uh, continuous story that will hopefully have the heft of something like Upsara Engine in terms of its length, but I think it'll be uh, one character, uh, a, you know, more explicitly following one character or protagonist through the, uh, through the length of the book. And that's something also I'm, that I'm interested in doing that I think uh, I was starting to lay the groundwork for in Upsara Engine, but I'd like to take that, that sense of a, a sustained narrative and just um, expand it um, while still carrying, having the sort of expansiveness and breadth of ideas and stuff that Upsara Engine started to, I think, hint at. So 
you know, God is willing if 2021 is any, is better than, than this year, I'll have the space and time to write that book. And uh, where can our listeners find you online? Um, probably best is on Instagram. I'm at bishbash, which is B-I-C-H-E underscore bash. And also uh, I have all, most of my work up on my website, bishak.com. Thank you so much, Bishak. This was such a great chat. Thank you for having me. This, this has uh, made my afternoon a little more uh, magical. Thank you. <laughs> The Cardamom Pod is made by Kajal Magazine in partnership with Erios Network. Aziz Adib is our producer with help from Jivika Verma. Our music is by Tasneem from their EP, Just Before the World Ends. Until next time, keep an eye out for evil eyes. Powered by ACAST.